Well, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark together. We're going to look at verses... Verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. This should take about five minutes, right? We'll see. Would you stand with me as we honor God's word and read verse 1 together? And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. I feel the same way. Thank you, Father, for your glorious word. Thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who leads us to truth. And we ask, Father, for your grace to be upon us this morning because we don't want to be misled. And I pray, Father, that we will be attentive to your word at this moment in our lives. And that we'll not come to it with ourselves in the way. Because we want to hear you breathe, exhale, inspire us today by your word. So I pray, Lord, that you will speak in a way that we can understand you. Ask, Father, for your help. I humble myself before you, Father, today. Ask for you to be heard and your word to be expounded upon in truth and in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Appreciate very much Pastor Melson the last few weeks preaching. Thank you, Roger. It's always a blessing to hear your sermons. I know last week I was <clears throat> pretty sick, couldn't, couldn't talk much, couldn't laugh much without coughing more and laugh, laughing less. And I think you see that my voice has somewhat returned, but I'm trying to speak quietly or so I don't find myself hacking all over you this morning. Um, Well, today, this text of Scripture almost seems to be wedged into this section. As you recall, Jesus is on the back end of a very extensive campaign through Tyre and Sidon and through Caesarea Philippi all the way down to the Decapolis surrounding Sea of Galilee, particularly on the side where all the Gentiles live. And we've seen him 
do some amazing things, really amazing when it comes to the whole context of his mission. Even previous to this time, he had told his disciples, don't go into the homes or the regions of the Gentiles, but go first to the household of the people of Israel, specifically telling them to avoid the Gentiles. And however, now, after all these these weeks and weeks, he has been going literally from one end of the land to the other, almost as if he's trying to reach every Gentile that's in that whole region. And he comes to the end of it, and he does a very strange thing in the last portion in chapter 8, where he, he calls the people and his disciples to himself, and he predicts his death. His suffering, his trial, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, and makes it very plain to them what it is that is the source, the total, the total, re- the total reason for his mission, and what he is determined to do. <coughs> of course, remember that moment when Peter answered the question, who do men say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, or thou art the Messiah, as it says here in, in Mark's Gospel. But we see in the synoptic, all the synoptic Gospels speak about this same phrase, and thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. And then he went on from there to clearly tell them that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to be arrested, he was going to suffer, he was going to be tried, he was going to be crucified, and he would rise again. And that same voice said, took him aside and started rebuking him and saying, this is never going to happen to you. And talking about missing the message. I mean, it's very nice to think your, your, your friend and your Lord and Master isn't going to die. But um, if you don't die, there's no sins forgiven. And if you're, there's no resurrection... There's no proof or validation of this, of this truth. So here is one minute he's speaking under the inspiration of the Heavenly Father, and the next minute he's speaking under the inspiration of himself and his fallen nature. So the same voice is speaking these two things. One is divine and one is very human and deadly to the mission of Jesus. He told this to the entire crowd, the Gentiles that were there and his disciples that were there. And he went even to the point of ending that that whole section, really the ending the section, the the campaign to the Gentiles by saying, if anyone, um, he says there in the last verses of the last chapter, um, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words In this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when He comes in His Father's glory with His holy angels. Well, that sounds like an eschatological phrase. You know what eschatology is, right? Eschatology is the study of the end. The end. And so he makes this statement that if we deny Him... And he will deny us 
If we deny him before an adulterous and sinful generation, then he will ashamed of him. He will be ashamed of us when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And then we see our verse. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come in power. Now if you're student of the Bible at all, and you have a study Bible, if it's a study Bible you have, or if you have access to commentaries, or if you can go online and read commentaries about this whole thing, one of the first things that you will see, and it's the majority view, this is the majority view of this subject, is that this couldn't have happened the way Jesus is saying it's going to happen and as a result it needs to be seen in a different kind of context or light right from the very beginning this what he just now said can't occur and it and the proof of it can't occur is that it didn't occur that the persons who were listening to Jesus on this day did not see the kingdom of God come into the world. In other words, a shift take place. The end of Satan's rule and the beginning of God's rule. They didn't see that. That's, that's, that hasn't even come yet. That's still in our future now. And current writers very quickly will say to us that these things never occurred during this time frame. And so as a result, we have to reinterpret it or see a proper interpretation of things like some of you who are alive now are going to be alive still when the coming kingdom arrives, when it starts. And so we'll hear things with the word generations. This generation shall not pass away and so forth. And then we think, well, the generation of those who are believers will not pass away until Jesus comes. Because obviously Jesus hasn't come. The end didn't come yet. Okay? I'm not saying right. You know, you know I'm not saying right. I'm saying okay. You understand that? And so we become very comfortable with this. Very, very comfortable with the idea that, well, you're right. It, it, since it poss can't possibly have happened already, then it didn't happen in a lifetime of these people. And so as a result, he's probably talking in terms of things like generations. That all, there will always be a Christian generation until the coming of Christ with his holy angels. And so, it's one verse. You know, who cares? It's one verse. Okay, we don't, even if we get it wrong, let's just keep on moving, right? Let's move on through the thing and, and we'll be okay. It's, it's better not to talk about things if you think you're going to make a mistake than to start talking and make big mistakes, right? Yeah? Please, someone say, no, that's not right. <laughs> That's not how we do God's word. As if this is just a, no one knows what it means, so let's just don't try to figure it out. Let's don't, let's don't get into arguments, okay? Like a lot of verses. In fact, every verse in the Bible probably has that characteristic to it. And so what I find myself in a position of saying is, what does this mean? First of all, what does it say? Secondly, what does it mean? 
And for me to say, well, it means to me, this is what it means to me. And if anybody says that when they come to the scriptures, what it means to me, then we're going to have a million different ideas of what it means. And so we need to be more careful than that. And one of the classic rules of interpretation is allow the scriptures to understanding of scriptures comes from an understanding of scriptures let the scriptures interpret the scriptures you ever heard that before and we all think that's what we're doing sometimes we do are and sometimes we aren't but the words have meaning each word has meaning notice and he said to them truly i tell help me i have a hard time with that word you. Now, do you think that when he said, it's like when I say, I have an announcement, or Chris comes up and says, I have an announcement for you. Is there anybody who would assume, she's not really talking to me. She's not talking to us. Now, sometimes we think that because, you know, there's not much response to things, perhaps, when we talk to people. But we never assume that that person doesn't mean you. You know, we said to our kids, I'm talking to you. As if, because they're, well, you can't be talking to me. Or, you know, stop them, shake them, look at them. I'm talking to you. You're going to have problems in the next five minutes if you don't do what I tell you to do right now. I'm talking to you. You understand who I'm talking to? Yeah. So you turn around and walk off. I'm going to walk off right behind you. It's, just, it's now, right? Do you, do you assume Jesus is not really talking to the disciples when he says that? That he maybe he, Do you think the disciples thought he wasn't talking to them? Do you think the disciples thought, he's obviously not talking to me. Just because he uses you, he looks you right in the eye, he obviously is not talking to me. Well, take it a thousand years, add a thousand years to this. We look at it. Do you think at that point it changes? Oh, well, since a thousand years has passed, obviously he wasn't talking to them. No, we don't assume that. We don't assume that's, that the plain meaning is that Jesus said to them, some of you, right? Some who are standing here <laughs> will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. So, how do we get to this text? Well, one of the things I don't want to do today is begin a one or two year study in this. The last time we talked about this from Matthew chapter 24 was about 1987. I was in Germantown, and I said to our congregation, what I'm going to tell you this morning is something that I can almost guarantee that no one here has ever heard before. And I didn't say that from the standpoint of, I got the truth, everybody else is wrong. What I was telling them was that what I was going to tell them and the way that I was going to approach this was not common at all. So when it comes to eschatology, when it comes to a study of the end, there is a vast majority view 
that does not believe that anything in the New Testament had to do with the people in the New Testament or at the time of the New Testament, and that's today, most people believe that. That the end that Jesus is speaking about or the coming of the kingdom of God in power is something that has not yet happened yet. Thank you for your amen. <laughs> your unction. <Achoo. laughs> and it's true. This is not what I'm going to talk about. What I'm, what I'm suggesting this Bible verse is saying is not the common view today. It's not even close to the common view. We believe that other things are there for us. And I'm not going to go into complete eschatological review today. Um, we are forced into something as we take the, the gospel of, of Mark verse by verse. And that is we're driven to some other principles for interpreting gospel literature. We've looked at these again and again. And that is, how is this presented in a synoptic way? Is it presented synoptically? Do Matthew and Luke and John, the other gospels, the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do the synoptic gospels cover this same material, the same, these same sayings of Jesus? And the answer is all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have very similar verses and words about this section. We won't pick this up at the same level that Matthew and Luke do until the 13th chapter. 13th chapter of Mark. Mark goes into the same kind of detail that is in Matthew and Luke. But for the sake of today, what I want to do is I'd like to look at these synoptic parallels together in our Bibles. Okay? So if you have your Bible with you, would you please take it? I want you to look at these synoptic parallels together. The first synoptic parallel is found in... <coughs> let's, let's, just, let's, do, let's do Mark first. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 1, we read, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Now if you'll just flip a few pages over to Mark chapter 13 and verse 1 through 3. You'll see this revisited. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that you are all, that, that, that they are all about to be fulfilled? And then Jesus answers those two questions that disciples ask, that Mark records. He answers those two questions 
questions over the next 25 verses or so. And we're not going to read that portion today, but just to, to, to say that he does answer those two questions. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And he picks up in verse 28 of Mark chapter 13. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now you've seen any kind of time stamp in that text? He's again talking to these persons, as he says there in the 28th verse, you know the summer is near. Even when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. So you could make the argument, well, he's talking to a generic you. Plural, of course. Ye in the King James. It's a generic. generic. It's the people that are, are listening to this and you're the you. So whether it's during this time or a million years later, they're still the you. Okay? And that would be fine to assume that, except when he says, truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is Mark's statements about this subject. Let's look at Luke for a moment. Luke chapter 21. Well, let's do, let's do Matthew next. I'm sorry, let's do Matthew next. Matthew 24. <coughs> and verse 1 through 3. Anybody want some candy? I haven't got any. <laughs> Matthew 24, verse 1 through 3. You'll see a similarity right from the very beginning of this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, they asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so he expands, Matthew expands into three questions. Number one, when will this happen? When will what happen? 
When will there be no stone left on another stone and every stone in this beautiful temple that seems indestructible will all be thrown down? That's the, these things. And the next one had to do with, this next question had to do with the time of your coming. It must have been a very curious thing for them to hear Jesus say because he hadn't gone anywhere. He hadn't announced he was going anywhere. No one had an expectation he was going anywhere. In fact, the thing that they, even when he lifted off earth and was, went up into the sky, they were still looking up to the sky because they're wondering where he was going. So going was something that we put with coming. <laughs> Notice they didn't, he didn't say, when are you going, Lord? He said, when, what will be the time of your coming? As if they understood that part. They, it was coming. When is he coming? Well, he's right there in front of them. But yet they're saying, when are you coming? With me? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? These two things together. When will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so he then answers all three questions over the next, you know, 30 verses. We're not going to talk about those 30 verses today. We're going to go to the chapter 24, verse 32, because we're only dealing with one thing here. Timing. When did this happen? When will this happen? So we're trying to keep a lid on the million rabbit holes that are in this text to try to answer this single thing or see this single thing. And he says in verse 32, Now learn this lesson from the, trick, the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know it is near Right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things, again, not one stone or another, all pulled down, till all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So we see something very similar to Mark. In Matthew, with a little bit of a, a greater emphasis in some ways. So now let's turn to the third synoptic. And that is Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And verse 5 through 7. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left 
on another, every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? Every stone being pulled down. And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Verse 20. Again, he, there's, a lot, there's a lot of information there. He starts answering a lot of questions. They're talking about a lot of different things. We're, they're all important to see, but we're going to just try to stay within this one subject if we can. And so we let our eyes move down to Verse 20, <coughs> answering this question, and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Now, I said to you before that the vast majority of eschatological studies assume that all these things are still in our future sometime. They haven't yet happened yet. They're still in our future. And so when it comes to this issue of Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, they've got, and in fact, almost in every major conflict that had to do with Israel since 1948, there's always been an assumption that one of these world powers is going to surround Jerusalem and destroy the city and tear down the temple. Yeah? Heard that, right? It's going to surround it. It's going to tear. Well, there's only a couple problems. Number one is there wasn't a temple in 1948. There wasn't a temple in 49 or 50 or any other time all the way up to now. There is no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Is that news to anybody? There is no temple. It's not there. So there's nothing to tear down. One person made the, a long case that what was going to happen is when the Antichrist rose up, the Antichrist was going to destroy the mosque on the Temple Mount, completely destroy it, and then Israel was going to rush in after that time, and they were going to rebuild the temple, original temple. Imagine what the geopolitical impact would be if somebody leveled the mosque on the Temple Mount, the second most holy site in all of Islam. It would, you wouldn't have time to build a temple because you'd be fighting for your life for the rest of your life. But nonetheless, <coughs> the idea that it's in our future sometime, it literally can't happen because it's not there. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. So, truly I tell you, it says in verse 32 through 33, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we see texts such as the one in Thessalonians where Paul says in, the first, in 1 Thessalonians that some people say that Jesus has already come back. Do you recall that or not? He said Jesus has already come back. But I tell you, 
that he is not going to come back until the great rebellion has taken place. And speaking about Jerusalem, the Jerusalem rebellion is going to take place. And the result of that rebellion is that that temple is going to be destroyed in Jerusalem. We see that very clearly in the book of Thessalonians. And so as a result, we, as we look at these texts of Scripture, almost immediately we start asking the question, who is the you? What is a generation? Because, and as I said before, you don't have to go very far. You can just about any commentary you pick up. When it comes to eschatology, you might even agree with all their theological orientation and things like that. But when it comes to eschatology, they, they almost like a chorus comes in and everybody gets in the same key, they get the same robe on, and they start singing this, this beautiful thing about how all this is in our future sometime. And this generation and you immediately after this time, it says in Matthew 24, like five times, immediately after this time, it says that in Luke, immediately after, or when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then this desolation is going to be there. You see this timestamp over and over and over again, almost as if the author said, I want to make sure everybody knows that this is going to happen in our generation. And some of us are going to see it. Well, well I want to just kind of try to, try to come to a you know, conclusion to at least one, maybe two words. <laughs> okay. Not, not a conclusion to the whole matter, obviously. And that is, has there ever been a time, okay, when that temple in Jerusalem in 33 A.D., that Jesus was sitting out in front of with his disciples, and they were looking at the grandeur of this temple, and there was Jesus sitting there. Has there ever been a time since he said that till now that that temple was destroyed. No, come on. No, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. You're not being serious as students of history and so forth. I mean, that that temple was destroyed. Is there ever any time it was destroyed? 70 A.D. Nero Caesar by edict, told his Tertullian, is it Tertullian? Is that his name? How do you say Tertullian, this great emperor, I want you to go to the Jerusalem region and destroy that temple completely. So he went. Halfway through that time, Nero lost focus. He you know, committed suicide and one night and so Vespasian had to go back home and left his son Titus behind. And Titus, over the next four years, destroyed the whole temple. And all the walls were broken down. The temple was destroyed. Israel was just, hopefully, they were going to just end Judaism. And in many ways, they did end Judaism. As far as its historic Orthodox practices. There was no place for temples. There was no place for priests. There was no place for sacrifices. A place for people to be restored. And from that time in 70 AD all the way till now, that has been the case. As a, as a result, the rise of rabbinical Judaism, which is a whole different religious form, took place. 
It's kind of re-picked up 30 years later and rewritten. And so you, how do you have, how do you have it, Judaism without a temple? Well, that's how, what happened. They just kind of eliminated the temple. Now we have rabbinical Judaism. So Judaism, as Jesus knew it, then ended. Completely ended. In 70 AD. And, you know, the question to ask is, do you believe in history? Then, then, it's, then you say, was it possible the guys were, let's just say the disciples were, you know, in their 30s. And in 33 AD, Jesus made this statement, and 70 AD is when it took place. And so within 40 years, these guys, were, were any of them alive? We know they were alive. We know there was more than just 12 individuals he's talking to also. It was a large grouping of people. That this, because he didn't talk about it being you, it said your generation. In this generation, right now, people are living right now, will one day be alive and they'll see this take place. And then there's a whole series of instructions in these three Gospels on what, you're, what they were supposed to do at that time. One of them was that they were going to preach the Gospel to every nation. They're going to be angels, messengers sent out to the four winds of the earth. There's a terminology that means through time, and, through time and eternity, or through time over time, not just you know, four corners of the earth, but it was meant to just completely surround the earth with the preaching of the gospel. So as a result, you, you see this little phrase that Jesus uses right here, and that we see this has some serious, serious ramifications. And he links it to another phrase very common to the people of Israel at the time, as he says in verse 1, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. And it is important to know, and I, I think I've shared this before, I hope you've heard this before, that when it came to what is the Jewish perspective on eschatology, what did they think about what eschatology, the study of the end. Because what we do, we think of the end as the end of time. Jesus comes back from heaven. You might rapture a few people first, take them back to heaven, have a big dinner, and then, you know, then they all come back together and they take over the earth and not sure whether you know, they're going to take over the earth or whether the earth is done away with and they're in heaven. With 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they, they, they got to be so many more than 144,000 that they said no. It's not, they're not going to heaven. They're going to come back and re-inhabit the earth. And so they kind of reinterpreted how... You know, these are all eschatological things. Because, and, and, and I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses many times. They say, well, what, what happened in 70 AD? I don't know. Who cares? Seems important to me. No. And in fact, you can talk to any person who has an eschatological view... And most of the time, if you say, what happened in 70 A.D., they have no idea what happened in 70 A.D. Or they'll say, well, that happened, but that's not really how it's going to work. It's going to work in our future. And so there's a book that someone wrote called The Day and the Hour. Wrote it about you know, 15 years ago or so, 20 years. He was an Oral Roberts student. He was writing his doctoral dissertation. And he wrote it on the whole issue of predictions of when Jesus was coming back. Specific predictions by date and everything. 
And how many did you think he found? He found over 4,000 specific predictions of when Jesus was coming back. And it started all the way back to the time of Jesus. And it went, and still, it goes out into like 440-something, 4040 A.D. It's way out into our future. There's these predictions of when Jesus is going to come back. And so in his conclusion, it was kind of comical in, this, in his confusion. In his conclusion, he said, I have found one consistency among all these documents. They're all wrong. <laughs> They're all wrong. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be the next guy to get into the appendage of this book, okay? And I certainly don't think that Jesus was confused. The Jews had a specific eschatological hope. We see this coming out in the, in the we've already seen it come out already in the context of Mark and the other Gospels and the epistles and so forth. Their, their <coughs> eschatological hope was this, that when Adam sinned, the whole creation fell into sin. And when he reproduced, that nature of sin passed on to the next generation through conception. Hence David said, from my conception, I was sinful, and at my birth, I, you know, that's not exactly the words, I can't remember how exactly. Um, I was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. So in, he was, his nature was, when he was conceived, his nature had a sin nature. When he, when he was born, he started sinning. So before he was sinning, he was still a sinner. And so that passed from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. And at the time of Jesus, they were looking for the redemption of Israel. The Messiah was going to come. They, was John the Baptist the Messiah? Was Jesus the Messiah? Who's the Messiah? Because when the Messiah comes, he's going to be, as Moses said, the one who is going to redeem Israel. And he's going to throw off their enemies, Satan. And so from the time of creation in the fall all the way till up to the time of Jesus, the people of Israel are waiting for the coming of the Messiah because the key is going to be he is going to throw off all oppressors to Israel and, that, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem for eternity. Very simple eschatological hope. So he's going to bring an end to Satan's rule and he's going to bring the beginning to God's rule. We think of God's rule. It simply is kingdom of God. The rule of God would begin with the Messiah. So when Jesus came along, everybody is really hyped up. John the Baptist said, are you the one or should we just look for somebody else? And his message sent back was, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, um, preaching to the poor. All these signs that were in Isaiah and Others who were saying that one day the Messiah would come, and when he came, these would be the signs that he was the Messiah. And Jesus is showing every one of these things, things like, you know, doing great miracles and feeding the poor. You know, the, the, all these huge, massive miracles that we've seen in Mark's gospel. And so now he's even preaching this to a Gentile audience. And he makes the statement that first, his first message, what's Jesus' first message? 
The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God. He says it over and over and over and over again. You just do a study on that word, the kingdom of God. It's all through the Bible. All the way into the epistles. Preach the, he says, Jesus says to us, the 70, go out and preach the kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out lepers. Cast out leprosy. The kingdom of God is near. Well, how does the kingdom of God come near? It comes through the Messiah. They got it right. The Messiah brings the kingdom of God, the rule of God. And they're thinking this eschatological change is going to be made. And notice when Jesus comes marching into Jerusalem on the, on the um, Palm Sunday, making lots of noise. Everybody's getting all excited. You know, they're throwing down things. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, come now or save now. Like he's the Messiah. And what, remember what the elders did? We've got to tamp this down. We've got to tamp this down because if, if Rome hears about this, they're going to come and they're going to take away our kingdom from us, our power from us. So we can't let some guy start acting like he's the Messiah because everybody knows that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to throw off the Satan. And who's the Satan right then? Rome. And so this is high pitch. It's a high-pitched problem that they're having. Well, come to find out, they take the Messiah. Instead of going to Jerusalem, they thought he was going was to work. He's heading toward Jerusalem, right? Where'd he go? Right into the temple? Turned over the tables? Told him that my father's is a house of prayer? Get out of my father, you den of thieves. Talking to the, the religious people. Did everything wrong. And now they're against him. Now they want to kill him. And he's telling his disciples right here, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised from the dead. And he said it made this plain to them. Clearly told them what, is, what this was going to accomplish. Recognizing that the gospel is not an eschatological hope that says that we're going to have some political leader that's going to come and throw off all the bad stuff. And we're going to be in charge and Messiah is going to rule for a thousand years or a long time. He's not throwing off political Satans. He's throwing off Lucifer. He's throwing off the one who has taken into captive every soul of every person who is conceived. And he comes to die for his people. For those the Father has given him. Peter calls that the elect of God. Jesus comes and he accomplishes his mission fully. And he ushers in the rule of God. And where does God's rule take place? Politically? No, in the hearts of his people. Of his subjects. His people. Us. So people, even today, they get themselves all worked up about, you know, Donald Trump and how he's the savior of America. And, and then now we're a Christian nation because, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I heard this on the news the other night, you know, that Donald Trump confessed he was his, his faith in Jesus Christ. And so I'm thinking, what's Donald Trump have to do with any of this, you know? He's now almost a, a messianic person. I'm not predicting that, Okay. 
But it's a political thing. Putting your trust in political things. That political things are going to throw off the bad stuff and we're going to be fine. We're going to be protected because of political things. That's not Jesus' message. In the world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. My power, I've I brought in the power of God into your life. You don't have to fear the world. And this world is not our world. This world is passing away. And the kingdom that we are a part of, the kingdom of God, is one that is an eternal kingdom. And guess when it starts? Right now. We're already under its rulership, already under its authority. And this is a message he's preaching to Jews and Gentiles in the 30s A.D., he never put his trust in political powers. I mean, you know, you see these, these pictures at Easter time. There's this most recent one was done. Was, here's Pontius Pilate, and he's listening to Jesus. He's, oh, he says to his wife, I don't really have a problem with this. This guy hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, I'm kind of, I'm, you feel like he's kind of leaning toward Jesus. You think, well, just let the movie go on. Maybe he did. Maybe he did. You know? <laughs> like Peter. No one's ever going to kill you. No, it's, that's the whole point of it, isn't it? We are rescued from hell, from the devil and his power by the Messiah, Jesus, the one who has come to deliver us from our sins, from Satan's, the prince and power of the air, from Satan's power. Amen? And he just... Breathe this out, one sentence. Just breathe this out in one sentence. So now we know everything we need to know, right? Yes, we do. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus Christ is the one that at his name every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. These, this is our testimony. This is our message. We need to be careful that we live at peace in the world, but we don't just grab those standards of the world and yoke ourselves to them. Because what they do is they steal the substance of the gospel that resides in us. Paul, preacher said, be ready to answer the question regarding the hope that lies within you. So it's just another nudge and reminder for us of why we're here and what the substance of our message is before our glorious God. Amen.